Well, we're back in Luke. We took a, li- a, a little bit of a break at kind of a major transition point. Uh, so we're going to hop back into Luke. We'll, you can get in your Bibles there. Luke chapter 19, beginning in verse 45. Back in June, I was teaching uh, the kids at Vacation Bible School, you know, and there's so many of you all that come and help with that, that really my only job that week is to, to teach the kids. And on the first day of Vacation Bible School, Monday morning, I, I got up and it was kind of raining and, you know, we were kind of wondering if we we're going to be able to do outdoor games or any of the stuff. Well, the weather, the weather turned out to be great. We were able to do everything we wanted to do. So at the end of the day, when I was teaching, I, I told the kids that, you know, I, I, I woke up this morning and it was raining so hard and we weren't sure if we were going to be able to be outside. And, and I looked at the clouds and I told them to knock it off. And immediately the rain stopped. And of course, the kids are like, whatever. No, you didn't. And I'm like, well, well, why would you say that? And from, from one of the kids in the, in the back corner, they said, because you ain't God. And you know what? They were right. <laughs> they were right. They understood that I could not exercise that level of power, that level of authority over this world, because I simply do not possess the authority. And so our text this morning is actually all about authority. And who possesses it? And how we should respond to the one who does indeed possess it. In fact, this whole section that we're going to be in in Luke for a while is sort of a clash between the religious leaders who sort of have some authority there in Israel and with Jesus who has ultimate authority. And this conflict that we're going to see in Luke chapter 19, extending into chapter 20 here, even into the beginning of chapter 21, this, this conflict has been building for a while. You know, we've seen that th- there were actually those who exercised faith early on in the book of Luke. We think of the Roman satyrian who wanted uh, uh, his servant to be healed, and he sort of sent for Jesus, would you come and would you heal my servant? And as Jesus begins to make his way to, to heal this man, the centurion sent, sends another messenger, and he says, you know, I know that you have Or he says this, I know what it is to exercise authority. I know what it is to tell one person to go here and he goes, and to tell another person to go over here and he goes. So he he, he sends a messenger to Jesus, say, just say the word. I know that you can do this. You don't have to come here. Just say the word and my servant will be healed. So he recognized the authority of Christ, even from a, a, a distance, and Jesus actually commended him for his faith. So we've seen those who recognize the authority of Jesus, but there are many, as we've seen in Israel during the ministry of Jesus, that are on the other side, claiming that Jesus is a fraud, in fact going so far as to say that Jesus exercises authority because of Satan, right? You cast out demons by the power of Beelzebul, they said. So if I had to sort of boil down the, the main point of our text this morning, I think, I think we could say it this way. There's really two options, right? And they're sort of represented there in the, in the Pharisaic or religious leaders of Israel. It, you know, Jesus exercises power or, by the, or authority by the power of Satan or the, the centurion who was commended for his faith. And that's not my boil down. That's like a long convoluted sentence I just made up on the spot. Here's my, here's my one line main point. Either Jesus' authority is from heaven or it's from man. Right? Either Jesus' authority is from heaven or it is from man. And then we could follow it this, with this. If from heaven, we should follow him. 
We should submit our entire selves to Him. If it's from man, there's no reason to bother. Right? If it's from man, there's no reason to bother. So I think we can sort of dive into our text and see this theme of authority through a couple of questions that I think our text actually speaks to. The first is this, how do we truly worship God? How do we truly worship God? Look there uh, in verse 45. And he entered entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. So Jesus, one of the ways we see his authority in the text is that he enters the temple and he treats the temple as if it's his, right? As if he owns the place. You don't typically kick someone out of someone else's house, but you might kick guests out of your own house. And that's exactly what Jesus actually does here. He, he, he begins to drive out in verse 45 of the text, says, those who sold. All right, so we need a little bit of maybe historical context to understand who that is. This is the week of the Passover. Passover was a feast to, to commemorate God's work at, you know, back in Exodus and freeing His people miraculously right, and, and from, from Egyptian bondage, and then it became a yearly feast after that. After the construction of the temple, Passover became actually what they would call like a pilgrim feast. They would, they would actually go to Jerusalem to observe this, this celebration, this feast, right? Luke 2, if, if you remember way back when we were in Luke chapter 2, it says Jesus' family went up to the temple every year during the Passover, right? So that was not unusual in Israel for people to be converging on Jerusalem at this time. And as you may recall, if you've, if you've read through Exodus, you remember Exodus, part of this feast involved sacrificing an unblemished lamb, right? But you can imagine people coming from even outside the borders of Israel, you know, religious Jewish people, even from outside the borders of Israel, converging on Jerusalem. It might not be practical for them to transport a lamb all the way on their pilgrimage, so instead, what they had is they had the opportunity within like the temple grounds. You know, when it says temple here, it's, it, it refers to like the whole grounds, not just the, the main structure that we sometimes think of. But on these temple grounds, you could then just come with money. You could buy a sacrificial animal, right? Or, or there was a certain tithe that was due, like half a shekel was due. You know, so you could also bring your foreign currency and exchange it there on site so that you could give the right tithe. At the temple, they weren't going to accept like foreign currency. So that's what was going on on these grounds. Now, it becomes really evident by the way Jesus responds and what he says that, that these people weren't actually just trying to make worship easier, right? Let me, let, me make it, let me give you a truly unblemished lamb at a reasonable cost. It becomes really apparent that these sellers and these Money changers were taking advantage of people for their own gain. Right? They're taking advantage of worshipers for their own gain. And this makes Jesus angry. Right? God gets angry when worship is perverted and it's driven by selfish ambition rather than the glory of God. These people are perverting what God had told them to do, and it it angers Jesus as he enters the temple. You know, if at one point, 
uh, in the last few years anyways, we, we were in Malachi and it kind of reminded me of uh, the words in Malachi that Israel had so perverted worship that God had actually told them it would be better if somebody just shut the doors to the temple. Be better if somebody just locked the doors. So this whole, this whole event becomes an indictment on the way Israel thought they could approach God. It becomes an indictment on their worship. It is clear as we look at Malachi and as we look at the, the, the history of the Old Testament that Israel at the time of the coming of Christ is walking, we might say, in the sins of their fathers. They've perverted the work of the temple. They've turned it into a racket for their own gain. And this is not anything new. This has sort of been the pattern for Israel leading up to the coming of Christ. And Jesus can make this point really easily by simply looking back to Old Testament texts that were written hundreds of years before he came and say, this is exactly what Jeremiah was talking about. This is exactly what Isaiah was talking about. And that's what he does actually there in verse 46. He quotes a pair of Old Testament passages. The first comes from Isaiah 56, verse 7 where God's Word says, My house shall be a house of prayer. Jesus quotes that there in verse 46. My house shall be a house of prayer. This was one of the purposes of, of the temple, that it could be a place where people could come and they could pray and, and God's presence would be physically manifested there at the temple and they could pray there. Right? In fact, in Isaiah 56, Luke leaves this out. I think Mark includes it. It's supposed to be, it was meant to be a place of prayer for all the nations. All the nations were, were meant to recognize Yahweh and be able to come to the temple and pray to God. Even after the temple was uh, erected during King Solomon's reign, you can read about it in 1 Kings 8, King Solomon prayed this way. This is one of the things he said at the dedication of the temple. When your people Israel are defeated before the enemy because they have sinned against you, and if they turn again to you and acknowledge your name and pray and plead with you in this house, if the people come to the temple and they plead with God and, and they ask him to, to turn away his wrath and they repent of their sins, then uh, Solomon asked this of God, then hear in, in the heavens and forgive the sin of your people Israel and bring them again to the land that you gave to their fathers. If they would come to this temple and they would turn from their sin and they would pray and they would plead with God, Lord, turn from your wrath. Well, what's going on when Jesus shows up? Right? They've been occupied by Israel. They're facing the judgment of God and, and the occupation of another uh, foreign ruler. But instead of coming into the temple and turning to him and confessing their sin and praying and, and pleading with him and asking for forgiveness, what are they doing? Instead, they're taking advantage of people who have come to try to worship God. So instead of the, the house of the Lord, the temple of the Lord becoming a house of prayer, Jesus says, you've turned it into a den of robbers. And that's quoting Jeremiah chapter 7. In fact, I, I'm going to turn there. You don't actually have to, but it, it, it might be helpful for you. Jeremiah chapter 7. I should probably just tell you, you should turn there or not turn there like... That's totally unhelpful to be like, I'm going to turn there. You can, you can't, whatever. If you're getting there, chapter 7, verse 1, the word that 
came to Jeremiah from the Lord, stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there this word. So Jeremiah is told, go to, to, the, to the gate of the temple and proclaim this message. And he begins by, amend your ways. Again, a call to repentance. Turn to him. Look in verse 5, if you're there with me. For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute justice one with another, if you do not oppress the sojourner, the fatherless, or the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not go after other gods to your own harm, then I will let you dwell in this place, in the land that I gave of old to your fathers forever. Again, much like Jesus, so Jesus is taking Jeremiah's pronouncements, which is one of the most scathing pronouncements in Jeremiah's prophecy. Right? He says, you've turned the temple into the opposite of what it was ten- intended to be. You've made it, he says there in verse 11. He says, has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Right? They, they've turned what was meant to be the temple of the one true living God. And instead, they've turned it into like a cave, a den of thieves. Right? So in Jeremiah's day and in Jesus' day, those, those in, in the temple, those who were meant to be in charge of leading God's people toward holiness and righteousness, instead, Jeremiah said, they're oppressing the, the, the foreigner, the widow, the orphan. They're not doing justice. They're taking advantage of others for their own gain, and they're using the temple grounds to do it. The temple grounds are, are, are not a place of prayer any longer. It's become a hideout for thieves. That's what a den, den's like cave, like a cave where, where highway robbers would sort of hide out. He's saying that's what, that's what you've turned the temple into. So he's taking that text and he's applying it to his day and saying Israel's continuing to walk in spiritual darkness. And it's evident by the, by the practices of those inside the temple, particularly the money changers and the sellers, right? Those who would be selling most likely sacrificial lambs. All right, so the focus of our section is, is by and large, if you had to say what's, what's the main thrust, it's, it's Israel's rejection of the Messiah that's going to lead to his death and victorious resurrection. And then the gospel going to the nations. So what's going on? What's going on with this confrontation? Well, Israel's rejecting their Messiah, so so it's going to lead to his death, his resurrection, and the gospel going to the nations. Right? In fact, Jesus' work, his death, and his resurrection will be so consequential that that the, the, the center of the worship of God will no longer be a physical building. Right? It will no longer be a temple. It won't be a structure in Jerusalem where God uh, kind of physically manifests His presence and where people must then go in order to worship. In fact, the work of Christ is so significant that the, the New Testament tells us that His people are like a spiritual house that are being built on the cornerstone, which is Christ. And that God's presence doesn't dwell in a building any longer. It dwells in His people through the Holy Spirit. And this this Holy Spirit empowers His people to walk in in righteousness and holiness. 
And to proclaim, if, if, if we're sort of summarizing 1 Peter 2 here, to proclaim the excellencies of Christ who called us out of darkness and into marvelous light. And so we aren't, we aren't Israelites. We're not, we're not, this is not the temple, right? There was some, there's like a weird movement in the 50s and 60s to name your church. To, and I don't want to be offensive, right? If you grew up in some Baptist temple, it's probably, it's just not good. It's just a little sloppy. All right, back to my notes. We gather as a church to then respond to the one true God who saved us from His wrath through the sacrificial death of His Son and who has given us the Holy Spirit, who has awakened us to see the glory of God, the glory of the gospel in Jesus Christ. Right, So God takes up residence now in His people because of the work of Christ through the Holy Spirit. And we gather together to worship Christ. The, the place becomes secondary. Right? I'm thankful for this building, the structure that we have, but the place becomes secondary. The goal is that we gather and that we gather to worship Christ together. And we can only do that through the work of Jesus and through His Holy Spirit. In fact, Paul said it this way in Philippians 3.3, we worship by the Spirit of God and we glory in Christ Jesus. We worship by the Spirit of God and we glory in Christ Jesus. So worship is not centered on a place, but on a person. And that person is Christ, and it's, it's an enlivened by the Spirit who indwells His people. Right? So we're seeing that God cares about worship. Right? He cares about worship to the extent that He sent His Son to, to make it possible. But I think another thing we, we learn from the text is that God takes worship seriously. Right? It angers Christ that worship in Israel and the temple had been perverted. So I, would, I think about it this way. God is too holy, and, and he, he's, he's just holy, like to, even to say too holy is, but look, follow me here. He's too holy to be worshipped flippantly, right? He's too holy to be worshipped flippantly as if I get to decide how that happens, okay? And he's too good then to leave us in the dark. Right? He's too good to leave, leave us in the dark as to what, it, what He requires of us. All right? Too holy to be worshipped flippantly and too good to not tell us how to approach Him. And so I would say this is why we as a church take worship seriously. Jesus desires true worship, and we believe that He has the authority then to regulate the way we worship and that He's good enough to tell us how to do it. Right? He has the authority to regulate how He is worshipped, and He has told us how to do that. We would say that, that Christ is honored when we worship in ways that God describes for us in the Scriptures. Right? We are actually told, by, by God's grace, we're actually told what to do when we gather. So I don't know, maybe you've been coming for a while, and you realize that, man, we sort of do the same sorts of things on Sunday morning. Well, that's not because the elders lack imagination, right? That's because we're trying to come and do what God has prescribed for us to do. Well, what are the sorts of things that God has called us to do? What are the sorts of things we do every Sunday morning when we gather? Well, we sing, we read the Scriptures, we preach the Scriptures, we pray, we baptize when we have people to be baptized, and we observe the Lord's Supper, 
And we keep doing it, and we keep doing it. We keep doing it because we believe we honor God when we do what He has called us to do when we gather. We are doing these things in obedience to the Lord's instruction as He's told us what to do when we get together. So God is God takes worship seriously. He has made true worship possible through the gospel. Right? Through the gospel. You cannot worship God, okay, if God takes worship seriously, I want to take worship seriously. Just maybe we could boil it down to this. You cannot worship God apart from Christ, and you cannot worship God according to your own prescribed plan. Right? He cares about worship. He made it possible through Christ, and He prescribes how we do it. All right, so, so Christ has been proclaiming this message of the gospel. right? And, and it was this message of grace and forgiveness found in Jesus Christ that that is what so angered the religious leaders there in verse 47. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of, of the people were seeking to destroy him. So Christ has come uh, and he's, he's preaching this message of the gospel. Right? And, and this message infuriates the religious leaders in, in Israel. You know, chief priests, scribes, and, and these chief men among the people. Right? These were religious and civil leaders. It's kind of hard for us to imagine in, in America, but in Israel, you've got to understand, like, civil life and religious life were, were sort of one. Right? If you were a leader in the temple, you were simply just a leader in Israel. So these were leaders, principal men of the people. They had gained this status, much like the tax collectors, by being kind of in cahoots with their Roman occupiers. And they see Jesus as a threat to their nice little situation that they have set up, the nice little arrangement that they have. And so they direct their anger against Him. And this anger, as we mentioned sort of in the the introduction, it's reached a boiling point here. In chapter 6 of Luke, they were sort of asking, what should we do with Jesus? In chapter 11, they approach him and try to discredit him. And in our text, now they're ready to just destroy him. They were seeking how they would destroy him. Yet in the midst of this, this opposition, Jesus is found in the temple teaching daily, the text says. His message, as we've alluded to, if you want to summarize it in one word, it'd be gospel. Right? Good news. That's what he's proclaiming. That's what chapter 20, verse 1 says. He's in the temple. Uh, he, Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel. Right? Jesus came preaching the message of the forgiveness of sins. He predicted on multiple occasions that he would indeed suffer and die and be resurrected. As Jesus went about teaching, he he told stories about wicked people who entered the temple and cried out for mercy from God because they recognized their sin and they said, God, be merciful unto me, a sinner. And they left that day completely justified, counted completely righteous by God, not through some heroic work, but by acknowledging their sin and confessing it to God and crying out to Him for mercy. He told stories like that about a tax collector who did just that, and then he sort of made the story come to life by finding Zacchaeus on his way into Jerusalem, who was the chief tax collector, and Jesus told Zacchaeus, today salvation has come to this 
house. I have come to seek and to save the lost. That's been Jesus' message. I've come to seek and to save the lost. People like the tax collector in the story, real people like Zacchaeus. And this message of the gospel infuriated the religious leaders. And they wanted to destroy Jesus. But you see there in verse 48, their hands were tied. Their hands were tied because the people that were actually hearing Jesus were hanging on His every word. That is to say they were like gripped by His message. Right? So they're not actually able to kill Jesus right away. Right? So, uh, you know, they just want to try to discredit Him in the eyes of people till they can actually kill Him. All right, so we too then want to hang on Jesus' every word. We believe that He has the right to define worship, and He rightfully then deserves to be the object of our worship. He has the authority and the right not only to be worshipped, but to define worship. Secondly, then we're asking this, who is this Jesus? Or by what authority does He do what He's doing here in this text? That begins in chapter 20. We saw in verse 1 that Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel. And so he's approached by some of these civil leaders. And they say to him in verse 2, Tell us by what authority you do these things, or who it is that gave you this authority. Right. So these religious, these civil leaders in Israel, they oftentimes disagreed on a whole lot of stuff, but they agree on this, Jesus has to go. Right. They, They sort of, come together with the purpose of eliminating Jesus. But they're unable at this point, at the end of chapter 19, they're unable just to take him and to kill him because of his popularity. So now they're going to try to undermine him by challenging his authority. So they approach him and they ask, by what authority do you do these things? By what authority do you do these things? Well, what things? What sort of things are they asking about? Well, we just need to sort of look back in the the text and see the sort of things that Jesus has been doing since showing up in Jerusalem. Right? We know that one of the things that, that Jesus did on his way into Jerusalem was allow people to worship him and, and say, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Right? So, so they, were, they were crying out to him. They were recognizing him for who he is. And he didn't stop it, right? They wanted him to stop it. Tell your followers to be quiet. He says, if they don't say it, the rocks are going to start crying out. Somebody's going to testify to who I am and why I've come. Another thing that Jesus has done, we just looked at. Right? He got to the temple, looked around, saw that it was perverted worship, and he drove out physically, driving out the money changers. And this was big-time business in the corrupt temple. Right? This is upsetting a lot of people. The last thing Jesus did was have the audacity to teach daily in the temple, particularly teach and preach the gospel. Right? So the question is, where do you get the authority to do these sorts of things? Receive worship drive out people from the temple, teach daily here, preach the forgiveness of sins. Where do you get this authority? Who gave it to you? This is meant to be a a, a trap, right? If Jesus claims divine authority, like he has in the past, and they picked up 
stones to stone him. They, they, they will charge him with blasphemy and try to kill him. Maybe that's their hope. Maybe he'll just say the wrong thing in front of the crowd and then we can just go kill him. If he claims human authority, right, then who cares? Who cares about human authority? It's nothing. He can just be dismissed. Right, so here's the trap. It's laid. How will Jesus respond? Well, Jesus responds the way he often does. He responds with a question. He answered them, I also will ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? What about John's ministry, Jesus asked. Now let's sort of wrap our minds around the question, then we'll seek to kind of then we'll be able to see why Jesus went there and, and did what he did. John obviously is John the Baptist. You, you probably know that. John is the last of the prophets who was going to point forward to the coming Messiah. In fact, John was a privileged man. He was a privileged prophet because he got to actually physically point to Jesus and say, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So, so John the Baptist was a prophet who was pointing towards the coming of Christ. He happened to be the one that gets to, to actually point at him, right? John was actually a powerful preacher who called for repentance in, in Israel. Repentance, we've said, is turning away from sin and turning back to God. His job then was to sort of prepare the hearts of the people for the arrival of the Christ, for the arrival of Jesus. Be prepared through repentance to receive your king. That was his message. And, and, and those who received the message, he would baptize as sort of, again, as sort of a, a sign that they are, they are cleansed, they are awaiting their coming Messiah. So when he says, was John's baptism from heaven or from man, right? He's, John's baptism sort of represents his entire ministry, his message that was sort of symbolized by his baptism. Right? So the question, was John going rogue? Was he making up his own mission? Or had he received it from God? That's what from heaven just means from God, right? If you receive something in your mailbox, like we did in 2020, from the office of the president or from the, from the White House, hey, well, that's from the president, right? So from heaven, it just means from God. So Jesus asked this question then. So, so that's the nature of the question. Where, where did John the Baptist get his, his authority from? Jesus asked the question because he knew it would reveal the hearts of the religious leaders. You can see their conundrum there. They start deliberating in verse 5. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. Right? So Jesus, Jesus asks this revealing question. They sort of get together and, and they say, Not well, what's the right answer? They just start debating about what they should say. I don't know if you've ever been in an argument and you realize you've, you're wrong, but you're not willing to like, you're not looking for the truth, right? You just want to win the argument. So you sort of keep persisting in this argument, even though you're wrong because you want to win the argument. And then maybe if you win, you'll be able to admit like, yeah, I was actually wrong the whole time. I just wanted to, well, this is the problem with the Pharisees. They don't care about the truth. Or, or, or we should say the, the, the religious leaders here. They don't care about the truth. 
They're not concerned about what is true or false. They're so blinded by their hatred for Jesus that they just want him destroyed. What's the right answer that's going to lead us to be able to kill this man? They're so blinded. If they say from heaven, they can't say from heaven because what did John the Baptist do? He pointed at Jesus and said, here's your king. Here's one I'm not even worthy to untie his sandal. He is so infinitely above me. So they can't say his authority came from God, that he was a true prophet, because that completely undermines. Then they should be following John the Baptist's teaching, which actually pointed to Jesus. So they can't take option one. But as verse six tells us, they're also afraid of the people. Remember, there's a huge, there's a huge crowd there. They want to hear from Jesus. They're hanging on Jesus' every word. They're gripped by the message of the gospel. They're convinced that John was a true prophet, and that's why they want to hear from Jesus. So they, again, clearly can't choose option two. Instead of seeking the truth, out of fear and hypocrisy, they just refuse to answer. They just refuse to answer. Right? You see that in verse 7. The, the, the ones who had hoped to expose Jesus as a fraud are completely exposed here as hypocritical, cowardly religious leaders. That's why Jesus asked the question the way he did. They end up pleading the fifth. Right? And what do you think when you're watching like court TV? I don't know if you go watch When you're watching court TV and somebody pleads the fifth, you're like, he's hiding something. Right? They, embedded in their answer is the admission that they don't care about the truth. They embarrass themselves by the refusal to answer and seeking to entrap Jesus, they actually entrap themselves. Ultimately, they're driven by fear of the crowd and they show themselves like Jesus has been claiming that they are unfit to lead God's people. They're unfit to lead God's people. They don't fear God. So they don't recognize Jesus in his incarnation. They fear what the crowd might do to them, but could care less about God's truth, God's righteousness, God's judgment. Who cares about that? I only care what the crowd can do to me and killing this person, Jesus. You know, if they would have only taken Jesus' message to heart that Jesus gave earlier, who cares? Who cares if they can kill you? Right? Don't fear the one who can only kill the body. Fear him who can cast both body and soul in hell. They've made themselves unfit spiritual leaders by fearing man. Now, you might pray for your elders here at this church that we would never care more about preserving our own influence and power, but that we would care about the truth of God's word, that we would care about God's glory that we would fear God and not man. Right? Because these guys have utterly disqualified themselves by fearing man. So Jesus refuses to answer them there in verse 8. He's, he's sort of doing what he said in Matthew 7. Don't cast your pearls before swine. He's done. He's done casting pearls before swine, so to speak. He will give no more light to those who have been chasing the darkness and clearly rejected it. He dismisses these hard-hearted mockers. 
It's ironic in the Gospels that it is those who should have known the most about the coming Christ. The ones who should have known the most and been able to recognize Him are the ones who actually miss Him. So they refuse. They refuse to give an answer, and so Jesus says, neither will I give an answer. I'm not going to answer that. You know, what we know is this, though. In the same way that we said, like, the, the chief priests and the leading men of the city, like, their non-answer we said was an answer, right? They said they didn't want to give an answer, but they actually gave an answer that they didn't care. Well, in the same way, Jesus' answer, his non-answer is an answer, right? Because what he's saying is, my authority comes from heaven. My authority comes from heaven. He's going to answer it really explicitly later in the gospel of Luke. But we know where Jesus is going with this question. Right? John's authority comes from God, and in an even more clear way, Jesus' authority is from God. He is indeed God in the flesh. We saw that in, in chapters 1 and 2. Remember we said they're sort of contrasting the story of John the Baptist with the story of Jesus, and in every way, Jesus is better. Jesus is better. Jesus is better, right? So in a, in a more clear way, Jesus' authority comes from God. Jesus possesses this authority. He is the beloved Son. He is the King of kings. He is God in the flesh, and authority then resides in Him. One of the ways we see this in this text is that nothing, nothing about this conversation, nothing about His entrance to Jerusalem, and nothing that's about to happen to Jesus, including His death and resurrection, are a surprise to Him. So you have these, these chief priests, you have the elders, and you have the scribes thinking that they are, they are going to somehow get in the way of Jesus, and they're going to somehow stop Jesus, and they're going to do it by questioning His authority. But if you, if you think what Jesus said back in Luke chapter 9, verse 22, Jesus said this, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by whom? The elders, the chief priests, and the scribes and be killed, and on the third day be raised. The very ones who thought they were opposing Jesus, the very ones that thought they could undermine the authority of Jesus, they are simply fulfilling Jesus' plan that He said would happen back in chapter 9, verse 22. Ironically, the ones who hate Christ, the ones who oppose Christ, they are operating under the authority of Christ in that very moment, without even realizing it without even knowing it. In fact, thinking they're thwarting Him, they are serving His very purpose. So for us this morning, as we think about authority, we think about who is Christ, the question is not whether we live under Christ's authority. The question isn't whether we live under His authority or not. The question is, do we realize it or not? Do we recognize His authority or not? Every person faces this dilemma. Is Jesus' message from God or is it from man? Is Jesus' message from God or is it from man? Right? There, is no, there is no in-between. There is no middle way. There's no third, third way. Either Jesus' authority is from heaven or it is from man. If it's from heaven, we should follow Him. Right? We should follow Him. If it's from man... There's no reason to follow Him. Right? For those, we saw that Jesus sort of refused the mocker and 
the scoffer. But for those who see Jesus for who He is, the authority of Christ exercised in this world to purchase sinners from the consequences of their sin, that's the most glorious news in all the world. He refuses the mocker, he refuses the scoffer, but he actually receives all those who would come to him in, in humility for help. Right, John 6, 37, Jesus said this, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For this, and then down in verse 40, For this is the will of my Father. What's the will of the Father? That everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life. He refuses a scoffer, but for all those who look to Him, who believe on Him, they should have eternal life. You see, Jesus came not to impress the religious leaders of Israel. He says, I didn't come to, serve, to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for, for many. His mission was to save sinners through His perfect life and His sacrificial death. That's how Jesus exercised His authority, to give up His life. And in that, we see His compassion, His grace, His mercy, His kindness, and His love for His people. So we've, we've asked a couple questions this morning. We've proposed a, a, a couple different questions. How do we truly worship God? And, and we said, well, Jesus has the authority to determine how we come to Him, and He has told us how to do that in His Word. How do we truly worship God? And the second question we ask is, who is Jesus? Right? And so as, as, as this teaching goes out from Christ, the religious leaders actually miss that those two questions are actually related. Right? How do we truly worship Jesus? How do we truly worship God and who is Jesus? Well, you can only truly worship God through the work of Jesus Christ. The religious leaders were blinded by their hatred and their zeal for the approval of others. And they continued to exercise their authority for their own gain. And they missed, they totally missed that the only way to worship God is through Jesus Christ. Jesus himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you for Jesus Christ and the work he accomplished for us. We thank you that you are building us as a spiritual house, that your word says that you are making us your people. Through the, through the going out of the gospels, we proclaim it and we preach it. Lord, thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit by which you have, have sent and you indwell your people. Thank you for his ministry and his work. May we be faithful. May we submit ourselves. May we, may we Glory and the authority and the work of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.